Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I am the Associate Editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, how's your week been treating you? It's been going great. Lots of baseball news. Uh, weather's been good here in, uh, in the East Coast. Just played baseball with the kids today, so I'm happy. Great. Glad to hear it. It's, it's finally getting cool enough in Arizona to start going outside. This is a great time <laughs> of year for me here. Um, and actually, this week, we're also joined by a special guest, John Becker of Fangraphs Roster Resource. John, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you guys so much for having me. And I'm um, ready for the start of the offseason, ready to talk some baseball. Awesome. We're so excited to have you on. And I think it's a really great time to have you on, just given all the activity that we're already starting to see. You know, the the first couple weeks of the offseason, I, I, personally, at least, I feel like I always think of them as, oh, that's the drudge of the offseason. Nothing is happening yet. But all these option decisions, all the non-tenders that we're going to be getting into soon, all of the outwriting. To tr- there's There's been a lot of roster activity already. And, and I know that's been exciting for us. And I'm sure it's been pretty busy for you over at Roster Resource. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of, um, you know, trying to guess along with Jason Martinez, who who really runs point on roster resource on the rosters that teams are sort of going into the offseason with trying to project the best 26. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of sort of early non-tenders by way of outwriting sort of throws a wrench in that. Um, and some teams it's really difficult to find 26, even major league caliber players. Um and hopefully there's some early free agent movement that makes things a little bit easier for us and expecting that at least some things will happen before the the CBA presumably expires um, midnight on December 1st. Mm-hmm. Definitely. That, that feels like kind of this big shadow looming over all of us that we're trying not to think about too much, at least at least on my end. Um, so as far as today's episode goes, we have uh, we have a handful of questions here for John just about what he does. Um, how he got involved with roster resource, how he kind of handles the day-to-day over there. Um, and then we'll talk about some of the bigger news, uh, Tucker Barnhart, Wade Miley, Craig Kimbrell, some other bigger hits there, have a couple trade proposals. And then John and I have a few things that are, excuse me, I, uh, there's a there's a John sandwich going on this time around. I'm, <laughs> I'm outnumbered. It's, it's going to be tough for me to remember. I need, <laughs> I need last names this time around. Um, well, after those trade proposals, uh, we'll let John Becker take off and John Bitzer and I will hit on a couple other pieces that we have saved for the end of the show. Um, so with that, let's just jump right into a couple of our questions here for John Becker. Um, first off, just how did you get into this line of work? How'd you end up with Fangraphs at, at Roster Resource specifically? And do you have longer term front office aspirations or are you happy where you are right now? So I have been working with Jason Martinez at Roster Resource since way back when it was MLB Death Charts. So I'm 22 right now, and I probably sent him my first email when I was, let's say, 13, 14, um, saying, hey, if there's any input you want or any help you need, let me know. And from there, we just have had a really good working relationship of just banding about ideas back and forth on projected rosters. and things to add to the website and ultimately when it was acquired by fangraphs in 2019 i sort of continued in an unofficial role um sort of of doing things very behind the scenes or at minimum just sending jason suggestions so he could make those changes um and then was fortunate enough to be hired by fangraphs in a part-time capacity prior to the 2021 season so that's given me more leeway to really get in there and get my hands dirty with making these changes when Jason's unavailable for a couple hours or um, bouncing more ideas off of him that uh, we could work with Fangraphs to add to the website eventually. 
um, things like that. My primary responsibility is maintaining the payroll pages um, over there. So beating Jason to those changes is something that I typically do while he's updating the rosters. I'll be updating the payrolls when a signing happens, um, making sure that everything makes sense in terms of who's included, who's not included of notable pre-arbitration players, um, and making sure that basically the checkbooks are balanced um, from team to team when trades are made. So that sort of thing never stops and, of course, ramps up even more in the off season and, and during the winter meetings when there's a flurry of activity. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And so you, you just recently graduated then? Yes. So I graduated from Miami University of Ohio in May, just took a market research job in Chicago that I start in a couple weeks. So not really baseball front office aspirations. Um, it, it was an aspiration of mine going into college. I realized that that's something that I love to do as a passion and as a side job, but sort of more on my own terms than being beholden to the private sphere. Um, I'm too opinionated and too um, too much a fan of, of Twitter to, I think, ever give that up for a front office job. Um, so I'm very content to have a non-baseball side and a baseball side as I move into sort of a full-time career outside of baseball and, and continue a part-time career in baseball. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I think you and I have a lot of common in common then. I also just uh, graduated last May and I'm also kind of doing, you know, baseball trade values on the side, have a full-time consulting gig and I'm really in the same boat as you. I want to, I, I love baseball, but maybe, maybe a little too much to work in it. <laughs> um, what is the appeal to you specifically uh, about tracking baseball players like this and rosters? I think that the way in which teams are built goes so far beyond what you see physically on the field during any given game. So there are people who are more than content to sort of have that tunnel vision of, okay, the 26 guys on the roster right now are the guys that matter. Um, and I'm probably overstating, you know, how, how little people pay attention because obviously people know when the star player hits the injured list, but um, the importance of building a roster goes all the way down to low A, to the development leagues in the Dominican Republic, to the draft. Um, I, I definitely follow the moves made from MLB team to MLB team more closely, um, but I think that the value in depth, the value in platooning, the value in having guys available for you at AAA who can be major league contributors is something that um, I, I think a lot of people don't focus on a lot. I think it's something that's been focused on more in the past 20 years or so. Um, but just seeing those little machinations between teams that things that seem minor and may not be things that um, or just to fill out that 26th or, or 40th spot on a roster um, are things that are really interesting to me and seeing how teams work the margins is always something that, that I love to watch during the off season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so on that point, John, um, <clears throat> are there gray areas when, I, I know you mentioned that Jason's doing most of the roster stuff, but I imagine you have a voice in that and you mentioned you have suggestions. So like, how do you actually put the depth charts together and is how much subjectivity is involved? It's, it's very subjective. I think, you know, obviously when you're looking at teams with guaranteed contracts, you know that certain players are going to make the team and are going to make a very, you know, have a very important role on the team. But if you look at a team like the Orioles and I'm looking at their roster resource page right now, probably there are 
10 to 12 ish guys right now who can come into spring training feeling pretty comfortable that if they exit spring training healthy and on the Orioles, they will have a spot on the opening day roster. So filling out the rest of that roster is very subjective, especially when a team like the Orioles only has 31 players on their 40 man to begin with. So you're dealing with a lot fewer options um, which sort of helps swing it back towards making it a little bit easier to to pick out the roster. But also you're putting guys on the roster who you know probably will um, get DFA'd at some point. So looking at Joey Crable, their last middle reliever, mm-hmm. doesn't seem like a great shot that he'll be on the team um, in spring training. You're looking at the Nick Shufo, Brett Cumberland platoon. They have no catchers on the 40-man roster. And of course they have Adley Rutschman waiting in the wings. So it's a matter of balancing, okay, what are they going to do on opening day versus how many plate appearances do we think that they'll actually get um, during the regular season? So um, I think Jason is working right now to finalize the playing time projections, but he's going to be giving Adley Rutschman a whole bunch of plate appearances, and he doesn't have him projected for the opening day roster. So what we always tell people is look at the plate appearances and the innings pitch that we have people projected for, because we could have someone projected for the opening day roster and only have them projected for 30 to a hundred plate appearances, let's say, because there's someone waiting in the wings who, you know, needs to quote unquote work on his fielding. Um, so there's subjectivity on both ends. Um, but we think it's, you know, it's just trying to do the best we can to prognosticate, um, and help people out, whether they're just fans trying to follow their team or trying to draft a fantasy team and trying to paint a picture of, um, who's going to be getting the lion's share of time in any given position or get that last rotation spot, whatever it may be. Yeah. Do you ever get any inside information from front offices? Like, oh, no, he's not going to be on our death chart or you forgot this guy or anything like that? So we don't. Um, we rely really heavily on what is out there for anyone to read. Um, but we try our best to just mine the news as best as we can mm-hmm. and there are a lot of times hidden at the bottom of an article will be a couple of bullet points about um, someone or someone's injury recovery recovery or how someone's looked in winter ball that if you just went off the headline, you wouldn't even know was in there. So mm-hmm. we, we really do our best to read MLB trade rumors. We lean on NBC sports edge. We lean on really heavily. Um, the beat writers, of course, writing everything that they hear is what we, we lean on really heavily. It obviously would be, Great to hear from a front office person who says, eh, we're not very high on this guy, but um, it's sort of a fun puzzle to work through the offseason and try to mine the news for those little tidbits and, and little telegraphing of information from the front office and, and try to do as best we can based on the things that anyone can read, but we just happen to really scour the news for. And you mentioned minor leaguers in depth on the, you know, at the minor league levels. And I imagine that's even more challenging, right? Like, how do you decide which ones to include, which ones not? So fortunately, Fangraphs having prospect listings makes it really easy. So we we make sure that everyone who has a rank on the prospect list, those haven't started to come out yet. But for 2021, anyone with a 2021 prospect rank is on there. So that's a good place to start. We'll look through the other prospect rankings of places like MLB Pipeline, Baseball America, make sure that anyone who's mentioned there is on there. So that makes for a very good starting point. Um, Jason does minor league power rankings. So anyone who is in a, at a certain 
number or higher in power rankings is going to make the list. Anyone with major league experience, um, we try to look for notable rule five eligibles because that's the thing that people are going to look at prior to that deadline to add who could possibly get added to the 40 man roster. So it's pretty easy to, to, to find a lot of names to add. Um, we would definitely rather over add than under add and feel like we're missing somebody. So scrolling through any given team, I mean, there are people that I myself have never heard of and I look at these pages a lot. Um, we would much rather have people that, that might not be super relevant on there than feel like we're missing someone who is. Right. And I imagine as you're doing that, you might notice, oh my gosh, this team has a roster crunch. I'm thinking about Cleveland right now with all their middle infielders that are Rule 5 eligible that need to be added to the 40. And like when you notice things like that, do you flag them? Like what, you know, Tampa Bay always has a roster crunch and they have another one as well. So like situations like that, we find very interesting because they affect trade value because we know they got to make some deals. But how do you deal with those? So... Yeah, I, it's something that I try to make sure that I'm sort of tweeting about to the public. Oh, you know, so-and-so is not going to necessarily make the 40-man roster. I think someone asked me about, let me look on Cleveland's roster. It might have been, I think it was Stephen Kwan maybe that someone asked me about. So someone who's a top 50-ish prospect for them. But he's he's 24 and he's in AAA. So in terms of sort of the timeline you would want, he's right about there. But looking at who else is Rule 5 eligible especially outfielders, it's really tough to see him making the 40 man. So, you know, I try to make clear to, to people just via tweets, because that's sort of my main medium um, who might be on the bubble there as the time gets closer. I'm sure Jason will be doing a lot of tweeting about who, who definitely will be added, who could be on the bubble, who could be rule five um, vulnerable. I know that you know, JJ Cooper is a great guy to follow on Twitter for that as, as the rule fives are. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, but it, it is really difficult to sort of analyze teams and look at teams when you know that every team sort of operates from a different starting point, whether it's 40 man rate, uh, 40 man total or expectations or payroll. Um, and, and trying to look at each team, both sort of within their own ecosystem, but obviously trying to win games and make moves with the 29 other teams as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, you're a a great Twitter follow, by the way, for anybody listening, (laughs) uh, because, you know, you're highly active and always witty and entertaining. But um, one thing I particularly like is those um, uh, spreadsheets that you sometimes share on on Twitter, your free agent matrix, for example, and even going so far as doing like a a Mets GM (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but I I love those. I, I you know I'm just thinking, wow, those should be more popular. I don't know if you have plans to expand on that, but how did you get that idea? So, so much of what I do, just whether it's in my free time or whether it's stuff for roster resources, trying to figure out the off season puzzle of who has open spots, who can who can quote unquote afford anyone can afford anybody, but I know that the you know, Rays aren't going to open the checkbook for Carlos Correa, for example, mm-hmm. who can afford certain players. Um, and I was sort of looking for a place that had that all in one place, um, and it doesn't exist. So I said, okay, you know, I like making spreadsheets. I know a lot of this stuff off the top of my head. I read all these rumors for roster resource anyway. Let's just make this. And I think this is the fourth off season I'm doing it. Um, so like with roster resource, there is a lot of subjectivity. Um, 
if you look at the the offseason matrices doc right now, which is pinned to my profile on Twitter, by the way, um, you'll see that I have the Red Sox out on Seager and Correa for positional reasons. Now, that is pretty subjective. Could they sign one of them to play a second base? Sure. Um, but it, it's a matter of just sort of trying to solve that puzzle and, and guess what's going to happen or what could possibly happen. Um, and, and having it all in one place for the viewer, I think, is really valuable and something that I think that you can't get anywhere else. And it's all it's all sourced to the original source. So if you see a source on there that I have linked to that you don't necessarily trust, well, then you can disregard what that source yeah. says. Um, but I think that fans of, of certain teams do get that sort of blindness to what what the other 29 teams might be doing. So, you know, maybe there are Red Sox fans who say they should sign Correa or Seager, and they're both great players. They probably should sign one of the two, but I try to operate in what is realistically possible, um, whether I like it or not, and, and try to show to the viewer what what they can expect to happen, who they can expect to be in, um, who is in, who is out, um, based on both what's been reported and my own conjecture. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously there are free agent trackers. I know MLPTR does one, Fangraphs does one, but yours gets into like you've got you got things color coded by like you know <laughs> range of possibilities and things like that, which I think is very helpful. I'm just wondering, should that be more prominent somewhere? I don't know. Any thoughts on that? Um, I would like to continue to be the only one doing it. So no, um, yeah, it's something that. You know, I've, I've talked with, with Jason a little bit about, you know, maybe trying to incorporate into fan graphs in some way. But um, even as a non-computer science person, I know how difficult it would be to build out one of these things and have it mm. fit on one screen. Um, so I'm very content to just sort of do it in a pretty rudimentary fashion in a Google Doc and just share it for people to look at and share amongst themselves. Um, it's just a good springboard for me to just look at for myself. I don't, I don't even care if nobody looks at it. It's just good for me to sort of track for myself, um, trying to predict who, who someone's going to sign, trying to predict contracts. Um, you know, there have been off seasons where I know last season with, with, uh, sort of shortstop carousel with Simmons and Simeon and, um, DD Gregorius trying to figure that out was, was difficult at first and then oh the jays are going to sign Simeon to play second base well that sort of solves the puzzle for the other two um and of course that all happened within 48 hours of each other so um trying to just predict things is is a fun thing for me in the off season and it makes it easier when people ask me questions and ultimately when moves do happen then um you know and i go to update the payroll and roster resource it's okay now i can tweet out here's what their payroll is, here's how much they have room to work with, even though they could afford anyone, and, you know, here's some players they might want to consider signing based on positional need and then link to the matrix. So it sort of all ties together. Yeah, a lot of if-then scenarios, I would imagine. So yep. it, it's a cascading effect, I would, yeah, I would, I would think. Because if one shortstop signs with one team, it takes out the other teams, and then, you know, it's 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 a pyramid in a way of, of possibilities. Right. Cool. Sounds like fun. Yeah. All right. Shall we move into the, the the news of the week and get your thoughts on those? <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Um, so it, it has been 
a very active week week or two since the World Series has ended, kind of surprisingly, to me at least. Um, I, I actually have one more question along those lines uh, for John Becker. Um, mm-hmm. when, when there is a trade that goes through, I mean, in a normal offseason, who knows what to expect from this offseason with the potential lockout and all that. But when there is just a normal trade that goes through in December, it, it feels pretty cut and dry. Like, all right, put this guy over here, this guy over here. This is where he's going to be on this depth chart. This prospect's probably going to go to double AA, A, triple A, whatever. All done. How do you guys handle it this time of year when it seems like there's just so many minor transactions? And like you said, all these players you maybe haven't heard of before and, and just making sure nobody falls through the cracks. Because I know John and I, John Bitzer and I have had our own issues with every now and then players just fall through the cracks because there are so many baseball players and it is so many for just two people to get a handle on. So how are you guys keeping yourselves on track right now and not missing anybody? Yeah. So first of all, Jason's been doing this for I think 12 years now. So his, his miss rate is so ridiculously low um, that it's incredibly admirable how quickly and error free he can do this. Um, But you know, we, we will cross-check each other. So um, I will check the team pages as the roster moves are made and made sure that make sure that I sort of agree with where he has someone placed, um, make sure that if he puts a player on the injured list that they actually will be injured for the start of the year, um, especially this time of year you're dealing with some murky timetables. So I'll see if I can dig up an article on how that player is recovering. Um, and then he'll cross-check the payrolls, make sure that any outrights I had removed off of that payroll page that I moved a waiver claim to the proper team. Um, There is going to be a little bit of a delay in sort of making sure that everything's correct because we're updating things at the same time and then cross-checking each other um, typically by the end of the day. Um, But, but things do work out really well in that way, sort of having those checks and balances of, of making sure that um, everything is done. And I know that on, on how it works in the back end, there really isn't any more, um, difficulty in doing a minor move versus a major move in terms of how it's stored in our database and, and how it's displayed on the pages. So um, if we miss something, it is typically just because there is a flurry of moves and one minor thing um, happens or is reported in the middle of all that. Um, but it's it's pretty easy to just go through the, the transaction logs at MLB.com at the end of the day and make sure that we got everything on both the depth charts and the payroll pages. Um, but yeah, yesterday was a pretty crazy day for that. Mm-hmm. All right, I lied. I have one one actual <laughs> last question. How was that? How was that 2021 trade deadline for you guys? Because it was mayhem for us, mayhem from everyone in baseball, and I'm, I'm sure it was a whole lot of fun for you guys too. So I um, stupidly made a just a vet checkup appointment for our dog that morning. So I was away for a couple hours fortunately it was in the morning so i think very little had happened and i think let's say 20 minutes after i got back the jose barrios trade happened just to sort of give a timeline um but yeah i spent that entire afternoon probably seven straight hours either refreshing twitter or making actual updates um on the payroll pages doing the math based on how many days were left in the season um for how many dollars the old team owed how many dollars the new team owes which is why you'll see some very ugly numbers in that other payment section if you go to 2021 (laughs) because i was literally doing i think 130 divided by 186 times however much uh the player was getting paid to figure out how much the old team 
O's. Um, so, yeah, it got very hectic, as it always does. Um, but this was my first year doing it at Fangraphs. Um, so the internal processes there are just so much better. Um, and, and what Sean Dolan, our, the, our, our just data visualization guru, has done is just ridiculously helpful for making it just you know, I just have to do a few things in a database and, and run an update and this all just generates. Whereas um, in prior years when it was just all in Google Sheets, we'd have to, you know, manually add rows and do that math and the average annual values were not pulling from a database. So I just had to make sure that they were correct. Um, but yeah, it was a very, very hectic seven hours nonstop of just making sure that all the moves were correct and then going in and updating the transaction tracker. And then, um, you know, there were games that day. So then Jason had to make all the updates for, um, you know, just the moves that happened pre-game. So I'm, I'm sure he had to have worked 14 hours that day easily. Um, and the amount of work that he puts in during the season is just absolutely ridiculous and, and, very admirable and very um, much needed for people who rely on the roster resource pages, of course. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So sounds just as hectic as our day was over yeah. <laughs> over here. It, it's yeah. It was true. It was a fun one, uh, at least for us. But uh, oh boy, that was a lot. <laughs> All right. Uh, so from there, as as John Bitzer alluded to earlier, let's jump into some of the bigger news. Um, we had some activity from the Cincinnati Reds and. Some of it was a bit surprising, and let's just start with Tucker Barnhart. Uh, they traded catcher Tucker Barnhart to the Detroit Tigers in exchange for infield prospect Nick Quintana. Um, as far as the values go, I'm pulling them up right now. I believe we had Tucker Barnhart at, yes, 0, 0.0 million in median trade value, so pretty much a wash there. We had Quintana at 2.5 million. Uh, that number could go down. As this offseason goes on, our, our prospect sources have not yet updated fully for his somewhat disappointing 2021 season, and he is a bit on the older side as a prospect, so could see that going down. Uh, but regardless, accepted by our model. This one wasn't too surprising, and I think a lot of people, in my, in my opinion, it wasn't too surprising, and I think a lot of people reacted to it as if they had just traded their all-star catcher, but... If you have Barnhart joining uh, Tyler Stevenson, who, who had a very great 2021 season and looks like he's earning a bigger role, you don't really need both guys. And we already we all know what the financial uh, situation the Cincinnati Reds are in right now. So it, it seemed like it made a lot of sense to them. The Tigers need a catcher. It made a lot of sense for them. Uh, but do either of you have any any insight to add there? Yeah, I think in the in the you know pre wade miley claim and, and we'll get to that after this i'm sure world it it was fine to me for the reds i think it was a little bit and you know it, it's always weird to see those sort of pre-option decision trades that to me sort of telegraphs that they just didn't want to pay the buyout um but if you can get something of value for someone um makes perfect sense to go ahead and do that i think that like you said it was Tyler Stevenson's time to step up and you just don't see backup catchers, whether they, you know, deserve to buy, you know, the dollar per war or not make $7.5 million. They probably should in a lot of cases, but they don't. Um, it's a trade that I really didn't mind um, at all 
you know, at that point for the Reds to have made. And I think that Barnhart works especially well in Detroit with Eric Haas, who is just great against lefties. And I think Barnhart is really great to work with those those young pitchers, Mize, Scooble, and, and Manning. So that trade at the time it was made didn't really see a problem at all for, for either side. Yeah, and I would agree. I think one other point is that uh, the catcher market is very thin. Um, and, you know, so many teams you know, have weak hitting catchers. It's, I mean, not to say that Barnhart is a good hitting catcher. He's a little below average, but, um, but I think the Tigers jumped on it because maybe they sensed that, you know, the demand of at least a good veteran catcher, a good ish veteran catcher was going to be higher than normal. So they, you know, they made a smart deal. I thought I was mostly surprised to see that it was the Tigers. And I know they're kind of in this weird gray area of they're supposedly on the other end of the big rebuild and it's time for them to start getting good. They have all this young pitching. They have a couple of young bats on the way, Spencer Torkelson, Riley Green. Uh, But I really expected a team like the Marlins to be really aggressive on the catching market. And I'm surprised that they weren't in for such a low cost here. I mean, obviously still an entire off season left. They might be having their eyes on Wilson Contreras or, or who knows who else, Gary Sanchez on a by-low, but I was a little surprised that the Marlins weren't, as far as we know, more involved here. Um, but otherwise, echoing what you guys said, it, it seems to make sense on both ends, and wasn't it wasn't really the one that kind of blew up Twitter <laughs> so much as the Miley decision did. So let's go ahead and transition straight into that, um, and, and I think might have some interesting discourse here on this one. Uh, so the Cubs kind of out of nowhere claimed Wade Miley off waivers from the Reds. And, and it's one of those things where it was never publicly announced that the Reds had placed <laughs> Miley on waivers. Um, and as John Becker alluded to, the, the only real reason they would do so is to try and get out of the buyout there. He had a $10 million club option for the 2022 season, a $1 million buyout on that. If they stick him on waivers and someone else claims him, then they don't have to pay that buyout, which it seems it seems pretty clear they were set on going into 2022 without Miley, without his $10 million salary. Um, it's, it's reminiscent of the Brad Hand claim, uh, Cleveland claim, or, uh, excuse me, lack of a waiver claim. Uh, Cleveland waived Brad Hand last offseason uh, when he had a $10 million club option, and they did not find a taker, so they did end up having to pay that buyout, and he actually made more as a free agent. But um, this is very reminiscent of that, except... It was much more apparent, I believe, at the time that Brad Hand was on the decline. His velo had been down. Um, it wasn't his best work in 2020. And, and we all knew well well ahead of time that the Guardians were, at the time, the Cleveland Indians, were going to be cutting payroll. Um, but with this one, it kind of set Twitter on fire <laughs> because a lot of people were surprised by how good Miley was and just cutting him loose for nothing here. Um, and even more surprised that multiple teams passed on him on waivers for him to get to the Cubs. Um, Miley was worth six baseball reference wins above replacement last season. That number drops to 2.9 if you're using Fangraphs wins above replacement and by baseball prospectus, just 0.4. So it seems like there's a pretty wide range there on how valuable he actually was in the 2022 season. And he is in his mid thirties, 10 million isn't breaking the bank for any team, but we've seen teams give less and less emphasis toward paying higher salaries to their back-end starters. So, I mean, there are some reasons that this seems 
defensible, at least from a straight trade valuation perspective. We had him at 0, 0.0 million. We had him as an option decline bubble candidate um, in John Bitzer's most recent piece where he went through all the non-tenders and the option decisions. He had Miley as a kind of a 50-50 case there because yes, he was so effective in 2021, but the production, the, the expected production for a guy that old and the salary were about the same. So it was kind of 50-50. So it was a lot of outrage and I, I was kind of surprised to see how much there was compared to what our just purely statistical look at it said. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to hear both of your perspectives on this because uh, John Bitzer obviously <laughs> is the one who put together the model that says, yep, that's kind of a 50, 50 and, and John Becker, I believe I saw some tweets from you that were a little more in line with the general reaction. there. pretty surprised that it happened and, and, yeah, so I, I'm interested to hear kind of what both of you guys think here. Yeah, so I think that, you know, if you're looking for surplus value for $10 million, you might not get that with a guy in his mid-30s who relies pretty heavily on balls in play being converted into outs. Um, obviously, he's a big soft contact guy, so the, the, the chances of an out being converted is a lot higher for him than someone who also doesn't get as many strikeouts but allows more barrels. Um, so there, there's going to be some variance there for sure, but he's been very good for four years now, I believe, um, except for that injury riddled, you know, shortened 2020 season. Um, it, it's pretty clear that whatever he's doing with limiting hard contact works and is sustainable to at least some percent, uh, you know, to some extent. Um, is he a six win pitcher? I don't think so. Is he even a three win pitcher? I don't know. I think he's probably more than a replacement level ish guy as baseball prospectus seems to think, um, you know, but if, even if he's a one win pitcher, that's fairly okay for $10 million, especially considering that teams in only their second full season coming off of a pandemic shortened 2020 are going to need innings the value of a player like Wade Miley is not just his own value, but the value of the innings that he's soaking up, the innings that he's replacing, that worse pitchers aren't throwing. Um, I think that the need for, <clears throat> excuse me, surplus value doesn't necessarily have to be there, um, like we saw with Barnhart, to make him tradable. So, you know, even if the median outcome is that he's going to be a wash, um, if someone else's median outcome is that they're going to be terrible for 50 innings and Miley can eat some of those 50 innings, then, you know, there might be a sort of indirect surplus there. And I think that, mm -hmm. you know, even though teams operate on a, not on a, what have you done for me lately, but on a, what will you do for me next year? Um, you know, seeing a guy who just put up a 3.37 ERA, um, you know, whatever you think about ERA or not, and we'll probably get some down ballot Cy Young votes. Um, not get any trade interest um, is I think not great for the sport. And I think especially not great for the sport is that the Reds didn't just pick up his option and see if they could trade him later on. I think it says a lot about their finances that they weren't even willing to risk having to keep him um, for $10 million and probably got, you know, a, a wash for that or, you know, another maybe fluky six win season out of him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting because um, 
uh, you know, a lot of the outrage is probably coming from people who check baseball reference and their version of war where he's a six war player, uh, player. And I think Josh, you mentioned, well, that's because they use an ERA based model of war. And so you've got this whole variation of war system, which is sort of a side point to all this. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I should mention that our model sort of uses more the fan grass version of war because uh, we find that it correlates more and it seems to be the case here as well. Um, and, you know, for example, steamers projections have them, depending on when you check steamers, either between a, a two wooden player or a 1.5 one player. But the other thing that people don't sometimes think about is there are aging curves at play here. There is risk that comes with aging. The older you get, the more sort of broken down, if you will, you get. And we have to factor that in and teams do as well. And so you have to discount the projections for those things. And so that's why how we got to, like, he's worth eight or nine, and he's going to get 10. So it was close enough that we had him as a bubble case, but a lot of teams are value conscious, a lot of teams are budget conscious. And so I wasn't surprised that uh, they couldn't find a trade partner. Now, maybe there's some speculation that, you know, Nick Crawl afterwards said, well, couldn't find a trade partner. But then I think he's, he might have said something that, like, oh, like, as if to say, oh, he got played by the Cubs, like no one wanted to trade him, but... If they had, to your point, John, if they had, you know, actually, you know, waited and and um, and picked up the option, maybe they could have found a partner. So it's, but it, you know, at the end of the day, it's a wash. It is a bubble case. He's right around that that value point, I think. I think there's a there's a medium here. There's a happy medium of an understandable level of disappointment. That, that's what I'm looking for. That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> um, I think if you're going into this and reacting of, oh my goodness, the Reds bungled this, how could they not get something big for a six-win player in 2020? I think that's the wrong approach, and I'm not in any way suggesting that either John Becker or John Bitzer is taking that approach. (laughs) But I I did see a lot of that response on Twitter, and I think that's you're not quite getting it if that's your takeaway there. I think it is a very reasonable and measured response to say, I'm not disappointed that they didn't get more for him because, you know, obviously they would have tried to trade him before they just flat out waved him and gave him up for nothing. If no team is offering them anything for him, then that's not really the Reds' fault, is it? It's it's kind of the league evaluating him this way and saying, nope, we don't want to give anything up for that. Uh, but I think it is reasonable to be disappointed that the league as a whole has become so penny-pinching that they won't pay $10 million for what seems like a serviceable innings eater and that the Reds won't take that gamble of let's exercise his option and, you know, maybe three months from now, once all the top starting pitchers have been off the free agent market and somebody is sitting without a, with a big hole in their rotation from some injury or they just missed out on the free agent they wanted or whatever, we'll see if we can capitalize then. It's a bit disappointing that they didn't feel financially comfortable enough to make that risk. And I think that's a bit more disappointing for the sport as a whole. And it leads into this impending potential work stoppage we have in in about a month or so. Um, And I I think that's what John Becker was more alluding to there. And I I get that 100%. uh, But as John Bitzer was saying, the, the aging curve is very real here. Wade Miley is just Wade Miley. You don't see much untapped potential in there. You don't see any upside of, oh, if we can get him to do this, then we can make sure that that performance was legitimate and will be repeated. It's kind of just, we have a set expectation for what he can do for us, and we don't really want to bank on him doing anything more than that because he's just Wade Miley. Um, And and maybe this early in the offseason, as I was saying, maybe this early in the offseason, 
teams are so expecting and excited for their top few options of I'm going to sign Scherzer, I'm going to sign Granke, whoever, that they don't want to commit those $10 million right now. Um, they want to see what happens later in the offseason, and, and they're not going to be crying for missing out on Wade Miley. All right, if we don't have anything else to touch on there, then we can move on to what's up next. We can talk about the Mets. Do you guys want to talk about the Mets? Always. All right. So this has been a disaster. <laughs> uh, the Mets still don't have anyone to run their team. It seems like every every other day we have a couple new names come in and, whoops, they've decided not to interview or whatever the case has been. Um, I, I believe between your, your tracker, John, Becker, and I, I believe you might have a better handle on this than I, I've just been seeing names go in and out, in and out. Do you have any insight any best guess as to how this resolves itself do you what, what do you think is going to happen here john bitzer and i have been talking about this for a few weeks now and we've just kind of been shrugging our shoulders every time a new update comes out do you have any guess yeah i think th i think there is no shortage of qualified talented people and i don't think there's even a shortage of people who are qualified and and talented and willing to take the job even though so far i think there are 12 who have explicitly turned them down instead of um you know just being reported as some vague non under consideration or um were never interested to begin with um sort of thing um but the optics of being rejected so many times is undeniably bad and i think it's not just a coincidence i think that Sandy Alderson saying that he would step aside for the right candidate has already sort of gone out the window because they're probably just going to hire a GM and not a president of baseball operations at this point. Um, which means that for an assistant GM who works only under a GM, um, you know, moving into a GM spot where you're working under Sandy Alderson might be more of a lateral move than it is in the title sense. And working under an owner such as Steve Cohen, who by all accounts, um, it, it, his hedge funds is a little bit difficult to work for and tweets a lot about the Mets and is very involved with the Mets, as best we can tell, um, is a difficult situation, I think, for anyone to step into. So when you have two very involved people above you, um, you might need to be more than an, uh, an, MLB, an MLB team second in command right now to be willing to take sort of the quote-unquote top GM spot. Um, for the Mets. So I think they'll find someone. I think they'll find someone that plenty of people have heard of. Um, there will not be an issue with that. And they could hire someone who will very well, could very well do a very good job. And I don't want to lose sight of the fact that they could still make a good hire. But I think most important to note is that it's not a fluke that a lot of people have turned them down by all accounts, by what's been written about. Um, they, have had issues attracting talent because of how Sandy Alderson and Steve Cohen are. And that is something that will not go away no matter who they hire. Um, you know, the G the GM that they do hire may do a great job at signing people and they might win a world series in 2022 for all I know. Um, but it's very clear that having Sandy Alderson with his son as an assistant GM with Steve Cohen as a second year owner who all but promise people a World Series win by year five. Um, you know, it's a very difficult situation for anyone to step into. And clearly there are a lot of people who 
would rather just stay where they are and maybe wait for another job to open um, in a year or two um, than, than go and join that situation that might not uh, be very long for anybody to hold, um, knowing how Steve Cohen might want to operate. Mm-hmm. And that's not even getting into the culture issues that have been widely reported on over the past year or so. Uh, the roster itself that there's obviously plenty of talent there and there's talent on the farm, but it's just a messy fit of talent. You got Robinson Cano coming back. You got to figure out where to put him. You got a whole bunch of guys playing out of position and, and not an easy solution to any of it. And then I think one part that hasn't been mentioned a ton and and you kind of got in in that direction when you mentioned just the pressure that Steve Cohen has kind of unintentionally put on of, of we're getting a title within the next few years it's still a huge market and we talk about it a lot when players either don't want to go to New York or don't thrive in New York. The media makes a huge deal out of it, out of how, Oh, they weren't built for New York. They couldn't handle the pressure. They couldn't handle the New York media rah, whatever. There's a similar effect that could be happening here. They, an aspiring GM doesn't want to go somewhere that they're put under the biggest spotlight possible and kind of put in a position to fail. That's not good for their career long-term necessarily, even if, you know, the, the increase in title, the, the promotion quote unquote might be, might good, might be good, might look good on a resume. It's not going to look great if they inherit this kind of messy franchise in New York and things continue to go South. It's going to look like it was at least partially on them. Right. Um, it's it's a job that just about anybody should want, especially anybody who has never been a GM before. Um, and yet, by my count, let's see, I think we're at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven people who have never been a GM who have explicitly turned them down. And, you know, some of those seven might have turned them down, turned anybody down. Um, So I don't want to say that this is entirely a Mets thing, but I would have to think that at least one of those seven, you know, would, would jump at the right opportunity to be a GM. So um, again, that just says a lot about the Mets and, and the difficulty that they're going to have sort of rebuilding that image that, um, you know, many thought would go away when the Wilpons sold to Steve Cohen and clearly um, has not both because of Steve Cohen himself and Sandy Alderson and, um, you know, the Jared Porter scandal, the Mickey Calloway scandal, the Zach Scott scandal. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, they, it's definitely an uphill climb for them. And, you know, no matter how no matter how much money Steve Cohen has, um, if if agents don't know who to call to get that money, then the Mets are going to have a tough time this offseason. Yeah, exactly. And that's where I was going next, which is the sort of practical side of it. And we're into well into November now, and they still don't have anybody to call. And like people are saying, I don't know who to call. And it, like, how are they going to get anything done? I know they issued um, QOs to Syndergaard and Conforto. And, and so at least they did that. But like, you know, on more complicated, and not to say that those are complicated, but like trade scenarios and all sorts of other things that GM would be very busy doing right now. Who knows who's doing it? And that's what I think Mets fans are worried about. Right. I think that, you know, Sandy Alderson obviously has experience in that role. And from a pure, um, you know, can he do can he do the basics of, you know, fielding calls and all that? Of course he can. But um, is he the guy you want running point right now with 
the closest person to him um, in terms of title being his own son. Um, no, probably not. And you definitely don't want Cohen handling negotiations himself as a non baseball ops person. So, um, you know, even if teams say, okay, I'll just call Sandy Alderson, if agents say, I'll just call Sandy Alderson, um, he might get, you know, run in circles a little bit. Um, whether it's, you know, Sandy himself lowballing people or, um, you know, whatever it may be, um, definitely a difficulty having sort of a, a, a de facto GM this this deep into the offseason um, instead of not having someone who people know they can call and know they can work with. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. So moving on from <laughs> that Mets mess, uh, let's get into our two featured trades of the week here. Um, let's go ahead and start with the first one between the Phillies and the Athletics submitted by user WillM50. Pretty straightforward, has the Philadelphia Phillies acquiring third baseman Matt Chapman, who we have at $24.1 million in median trade value, from the Oakland Athletics in exchange for right-handed pitcher Mick Abel, $21.7 million in trade value, and infield prospect Luis Garcia at 3.2. So it fairly even by value, 24.1 headed to the Phillies for Chapman, and 24.9 headed to Oakland. And there's been extensive talk about an impending A's rebuild, both across baseball john bitzer wrote an article about it for our site it seems i don't want to use the word inevitable because we we've gotten some pushback on that recently on on social media um it's not it's not confirmed yet that it'll be happening but it seems likely that the a's are going to be trying to cut costs and how do they cut costs they do it by trading some of these mid-arb late-arb players and, and chapman's right up there right now um, so I'm going to pass off to John Becker really quick um, to see just kind of what he thinks about the framework of this deal, Matt Chapman of the Phillies for Mick Abel and Luis Garcia. I think it it's one of those that both teams would be a little bit scared to make because you're sort of putting all your eggs in one basket, the Phillies with Chapman and the A's with Abel. Um, but I think that, that it as a framework, it does make a certain level of sense. Um, Abel is sort of far, but not very far from the majors should start him high a, um, as a 20 and a half ish year old, um, Chapman has two more years, I believe until free agency. So mm-hmm. it, it fits the Phillies timeline of wanting to get over that hump. Um, fits the A's timeline of, of if not doing a hard rebuild, maybe doing a couple year reset, um, and, and being good, um, for you know whenever it is that they would move into a new ballpark whether it's in oakland or in vegas um or a year or two before that um so yeah there's it's one of those trades that is that sounds like some people would love it some people will hate it on both sides which makes me think it's pretty fair um you know chapman and abel are both pretty high risk guys chapman strikes out a lot abel is a 20 year old pitcher so you know it's hard to project him moving forward um, so, but I think in terms of what, what both teams are looking for right now, I think that does sound about right. And I think with the Philly is also having Andrew Painter now, it, it would make giving up Abel a little bit easier for them. Um, and I think above all else, they just need infield defense and yep. you could not do better than Matt Chapman in that regard. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I mean, they've had kind of a defensive hole at third base because Bohm probably is not a third baseman and now question is what to do with them they got hoskins at first so maybe you think okay 
maybe it's because they're anticipating the DH coming to the NL, in which case, you know, you can put Bowen with first and Hoskins at DH or vice versa and have a really great defender at third. So I think it makes sense. I think also we have to remember that Dave Dombrowski is the head of operations there, and he has a tendency to go go for it when he thinks he's got a chance. He's got that great pitching staff with Wheeler and Nola, and now Ranger Suarez has popped out there, had a great year. So he's got some, some elements, and he's got Bryce Harper, MVP candidate. So he's got a lot of pieces already, and he has a tendency to add to that when he thinks he's got a chance. So I could see this making sense for the Phillies. I do think the A's are going to at least – rebuild to some degree and so i think it makes sense for them to start acquiring young talent so i I like it from both sides yeah john becker you made a really good point uh with the infield defense there at how much of a mess that has been i mean just think about how much aaron nola alone would benefit from having chapman over (laughs) at the hot corner and it's just a position that really hasn't had much stability in philadelphia since scott (laughs) Rowland. it's been a long time since since they've had a consistent (laughs) Placido Polanco, how long was he there? <laughs> I mean, they they need something. <laughs> they need an answer at third base. The Michael Franco years, those are past. The Alec Bohm years, those are definitely past. Um, they need some sort of an answer there. I don't know personally if I think it's the best time for the A's to trade Matt Chapman. Um, I think what we saw during the 2021 season was that he was much stronger in the second half. Uh, he came off uh, in between the 2020 and 2021 seasons, he had hip surgery and it seemed like for the first half of the season, you know, he was swinging and missing like crazy, just chasing everything. His timing was way off. And it seemed like that started to come back a little bit in the second half. And you're thinking, okay, maybe he's got his leg under him a little bit. And so I wonder how much a strong first half of the 2022 season could help boost Chapman's, even if it doesn't boost his material trade value by a ton because you know you're also losing out on a few months of him compared to if you trade for him in the off season. I think it could at least boost some other teams' confidence in the player that they're getting. Uh, you, you know you're getting one of, if not the best defensive third baseman in the league. But right now it's it's a league average bat, and even that has a bit of a question mark on it. But if Chapman is back to himself, if he cuts down that strikeout rate a little bit in the first half, and you're feeling like okay, I can at least be confident this is a 105 110 wrc plus kind of guy i'm going to get more than just the glove from him maybe that just helps create more of a market for him so that's really my only thought on on whether they should even trade chapman right now but i think as we've discussed it's going to be very financially motivated either way so i don't know if they're going to be putting that much um forward thought into it i guess all right, so thank you again to user WillM50 for that trade submission. And now let's head into our second trade of the week. And now this one is actually tied to a bit of news that we didn't get to earlier, uh, that the White Sox did exercise their club option for Craig Kimbrell, their $16 million 2022 club option. And it was reported about a month, month and a half ago by Bob Nightingale that they would do so with the intention of trading him this offseason. And... He obviously was not what the White Sox had hoped for, Um, really didn't get anything going. He had some struggles pitching in the eighth inning, and there was a whole lot of of mess made about that. Um, So it seems like it makes some sense that they could trade him, and, you know, why not trade him to the San Diego Padres, who could use some bullpen help. Uh, So we have Kimbrell at 0.6 million median trade value here, just a little bit above that, uh, that $16 million salary mark. 
and in exchange, this is a nice little challenge trade, in exchange, the White Sox would be receiving infielder Adam Frazier, who we have at 0.8 million. So it's two guys who were relatively high-profile trade deadline additions in 2021 who just really fell flat for their new teams. Each have one more year of control, getting a little bit pricey. Um, Frazier is projected at 7.2 million in arbitration, so much less than uh, Kimbrell's 16, but obviously limited value in comparison to it as well. So, and it seems like both of these guys might fit their new team's positions of need better. So the White Sox acquire Adam Frazier, Padres acquire Craig Kimbrell. Uh, what do you think about this one, John Becker? So it's one of those where, you know, you you look at sort of how things balance with the trade value, and it, and it feels like it makes sense based on the model. Um, but when it's going off of surplus value on one player's salary being twice as much as the other players, um, yeah, the amount of surplus value is going to be roughly the same. But I think I would rather have a – starting second baseman who can fill in just about wherever for $7 million than I would a closer for $16 million. Um, even if they're going to both be roughly worth their salaries, I think a team um, in the position of the Padres who is going to already be running a franchise record payroll right now at roster resource, we have them at $192 million um, taking on Kimball's salary would bring them up to 200 million. When you subtract off Frazier's, um, seems very short-sighted to trade someone who I think is going to be very important to um, an offense, even if it's just as a, as a lefty balance um, bat, um, than sort of putting all of their eggs in the closer basket. And I think Kimberl is a lot better than he pitched um, with the, uh, with the White Sox. And I think Frazier is better than he hit with the, pirates but um or with the padres pardon me but i think it's um a lot easier to see frazier being worth a lot more than seven million than it is to see kimbrell being a lot worth a lot more than his 16 million Mm -hmm. yeah i i i'm personally i feel the same way uh i don't uh, i don't feel good if i'm the padres paying 16 million for a guy who's been so inconsistent it's weird though because kimbrell's numbers were just insane in the first half of 2021 I mean, he was putting up ridiculous, uh, and I get his peripherals. You know, you know, I can see why they overpaid for him. Meaning the the White Sox, uh, but then he got cold and he reverted to the mean, as far as what I could tell, because he's had some up and down years, and so you don't quite know which version of Kimbrel you're getting. And for sixteen million dollars, not sure I want to take that gamble, but you could get the upside version of him. So it's like the risks are balanced. I do agree. You know, from a sort of a risk perspective, Frazier is probably the better deal because at least you know pretty much what you're getting. You're getting a 300-ish average. You're getting decent defense. He can play a little left field, so he's a useful player. Obviously, the White Sox need a, a second baseman because they just declined the option on Cesar, Cesar Hernandez. So there you go. Seems like a pretty easy fit. Uh, so I would agree with you, John. I, I, I like the White Sox better version of this for baseball reasons a little bit better and a little bit for budget reasons as well and a little bit for risk reasons. Yeah, I'm in 100% agreement. I mean, it, this trade is very popular on the site. It's got so for the White Sox side of it, it has 31 thumbs up, two thumbs down. For the Padres, it's got 35 thumbs up, only four thumbs down. And that's surprising to me because as you mentioned the Padres are in such a bind right now financially they, they talked a lot about 
trying to find ways to offload Eric Hosmer or Will Myers contracts at the last trade deadline. And you can, you can imagine there's going to be a lot of discussions about that this off season as well. If they're in a position where they're considering tacking on a talented player, like a Robert Hassel or, or Ryan Weathers or whoever to try and get out from one of those big contracts, are they really going to then spin around and, in this move alone, increase their payroll by $9 million for a big question mark at closer. I don't think that makes a lot of sense for them. In in a vacuum, if payrolls weren't a thing, then sure, I could see that risk making a lot of sense, but that's that, this just doesn't line up with the Padres' goals this offseason at all to me. Um, as an aside, though, if the Padres are looking to shave salary, if, if Frazier is expendable to them, I do think the White Sox make a lot of sense, as you guys both pointed out the fit there is pretty good as a left-handed bat as a second baseman as some versatility um i I think that's really a a clean fit there but the kimbrel side of this just doesn't work for me either i don't know i don't know who's going to be trading for kimbrel at 16 million um i I thought that was that that option exercising that that kind of felt optimistic to me it felt like well we kind of have to do this since we gave up so much for him at the deadline we kind of have to if it was just a rental and he put up a six era or whatever it was for us then that looks really bad on our part we have to either bring him back and have him be good or trade him and get something for him and i I don't know how much luck they're going to have in doing that especially with all of the other off-season issues swirling with everybody's holding their payrolls even tighter and tighter than ever before i I don't know how much luck they're going to have there John Bitzer and I have a few other topics we'd like to touch on today, but first we are going to let John Becker go. John, thank you so much for joining us today. It was, we, we learned a lot about what you do and, and it was a lot of valuable insight from your end, and you're always welcome to come back whenever you want. Awesome. Thanks, John. Hi, this is Josh from the editing booth. So unfortunately, we lost the last couple minutes of John Becker's audio. Uh, just a little bit of his discussion of the Fraser Kimbrell trade. So if you heard a weird cut in there, that was why. And we lost his farewell to the podcast. Essentially, he said that he had a great time on the podcast and that he'd love to come back sometime. And we will almost certainly be taking him back up on that offer. He was a great first guest. Uh, so thank you again, John Becker. His Twitter account will be linked in the show notes, as well as the Fangraphs roster resource pages and his free agent matrices. So now enjoy the rest of this episode where John Bitzer and I break down the rest of the news all right so from there and i really appreciate thank you again john becker um we have a handful of extra pieces of news here and then um we wanted to go deeper in on all those non-tender decisions that as i mentioned uh john bitzer there's only one of them here now great (laughs) john bitzer (laughs) john uh did write up for the site um so let's just uh really quickly let's talk through some of the bigger option decisions and and other transactions. Uh, so first of all, J.D. Martinez did not opt out of his contract with the Boston Red Sox. He will be back with them for 2022. Um, this seemed like one of the bigger question marks um, among the option decisions, opt-out decisions, all of those. And I think the reasoning that we've seen for him coming back is perfectly clear. Right now, there's not a lot of information out there there's a lot of not a lot of clarity that's the, the word i'm looking for um about this off season whether it comes to the universal dh whether it comes to how money is going to be flying around this off season with the impending potential lockout cba issues 
Um, there's just so many question marks on all of this. There's even question marks on whether we'll even have the qualifying offer next year if they're renegotiating the whole CBA. Um, and so all of these things, you know, if JD and JD Martinez did not have the strongest season of his career in 2021, he was good, but not great. So all of those factors combined, you know, if Martinez can be a little bit better next season, if next season he hits the open market with potentially no qualifying offer available, if there's a universal DH, any one of those things could really increase his value and, and increase his potential earnings. And so I think it makes a lot of sense for him to come back. He's obviously comfortable in Boston, and it's only a one-year commitment here. So to me, it, it, it wasn't necessarily a no-brainer, but to me, I was not very surprised by it at all. Nor was I. Um, our model doesn't think he's worth anything close to the $19 million or so he's getting on his contract. So just from a pure math point of view and a selfishness point of view, he was absolutely in the right to, to, to exercise his option, or I should say not apt out. Um because he's he's probably not going to get paid more than 19 million based on look he had a horrible year obviously it was a weird year in 2020 where other people had horrible years as well he was worth minus one f4 <laughs> so it raised some serious doubts like is this guy done and so he at least had a bounce back year to say okay maybe that was just the weirdness of 2020 but if you look at the longer sort of track record he is kind of what he is he's like a two to three war guy that's really a dh only you know, even in um, like he had a great year in uh, 2018 where he put up 5.9. But ever since other than that, it's been like three two, you know, whatever. So he's not and he's getting older and older. So we talked about aging curves and injury risk with aging curves and so on. And so, you know, he's really not worth that much. So I'm not surprised at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. And kind of along those lines, um, Nick Castellanos, who's, who's somewhat comparable to J.D. Martinez, he's a D.H., but at least Castellanos has been faking it in the outfield for a couple of years with the Reds now. Uh, Castellanos did opt out of his contract, and he's coming off one of the best seasons of his career. He's younger, I believe, than... Yeah, he's definitely younger than J.D. Martinez. Um, and I believe that decision was in line with uh, with what our model said. Is that correct? Um, that is definitely correct. Yes. Um, I'll have to pull up the actual numbers, but um, yeah, he's got some surplus, so, which is another way of saying he's underpaid. So it's another way of saying, yes, I can make more if I opt out. So mm-hmm. rationally, it made perfect sense. So yeah, um, yeah. so he's making um, 16. He's supposed to make 16 on his contract. He's worth close to 20, according to our mm-hmm. model, in the next year. So he can get more than that. Mm-hmm. And, and when you already have that baseline of a pretty comfortable gap between what you're making and what you're worth, then it's not as big of an issue of taking the risk of, oh, maybe this offseason will be kind of weird, or, oh, maybe if they don't announce the Universal DH until later on, then I, I could be missing out on some earnings. It's not as big of a deal if you already know that you're, I'm not going to say guaranteed, but almost guaranteed to be making more than what you would have if you stayed on that contract. So it's it's a very low low to no risk decision by Castellanos. That's right. All right. Speaking of Castellanos, uh, let's just very quickly run through the players who uh, did receive qualifying offers. Now, I'm not entirely sure if this is the full, complete list. We've been recording. Oh, I just refreshed, and there are new names on this list. Cool. (laughs) Um, We've been recording this on Sunday afternoon, and that is coincidentally also the deadline for teams to extend qualifying offers to players. And so it looks like we've had a few new names populate onto this list as we've been recording. And so this will be fun to go through here. So 
the ones we already knew about before the recording, unless unless John has been checking Twitter this whole time, uh, I hadn't known about these until just now. So the names that we already knew about ahead of time were Nick Castellanos, Michael Conforto, Carlos Correa, Freddie Freeman, Robbie Ray, uh, Marcus Simeon with the Blue Jays, and Trevor Story, and Noah Syndergaard with the Mets. And so within those, there's some obvious ones. Everyone in the world knew Story and Simeon and... Uh, Freddie Freeman, Carlos Correa, those guys were locks. Castiano, since he opted out of his deal, he's also a lock. Uh, Michael Conforto, Noah Syndergaard, a little bit more borderline cases there. Um, and, and Robbie Ray, I mean, he just had an incredible season. It's it, He's one of the top pitchers on the market. It's going to be a bet of how much they trust track record versus uh, just an elite 2021 season. But he made a lot of sense here, too. But then... Uh, if, if you don't have anything to add on those names, we can get into the uh, the newer names that were just recently added to this list that I think have some more more interesting guys on there. Um, uh, yeah. Um, so a few folks were thinking that's a lot to pay for Noah, Noah Syndergaard, but not mm-hmm. really. Um, even if you include the sort of risk, you know, like I think, you know, it's typically viewed as like 80 percent of people coming back from Tommy John surgery. You know, we're just fine. There's a little bit of a ramp-up period, but he was so good before that. You, you, I think it's a well, well worth the risk uh, for the Mets to take. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, get into the other names, then we'll talk. Mm-hmm. All right. So the other ones: uh, Brandon Belt from the Giants, Eduardo Rodriguez from the Red Sox, Corey Seager from the Dodgers. That one was a no-brainer. Chris Taylor from the Dodgers with his postseason performance. That one became a no-brainer. And then Justin Verlander from the Astros. Yeah. So the first one that jumps out at me is Eduardo Rodriguez. Um, we had some of the users of our, our site a couple months ago saying, oh, you know, he's oh, he's done. Right. He's terrible because there was a real disconnect between his ERA and traditional mm-hmm. like one people who even look at one loss records and his underlying metrics, which actually were just as consistently good as they had been in previous years. And so I said, no, he's doing fine. It's just don't look at the ERA, look at the other numbers. And so I'm not surprised because he was worth more than the 18.4. Look, all these cases, the teams basically did their math and said they're worth more than this. So it's a good deal. Um, you could maybe raise your eyebrows a little bit about Brandon Belts because he's yeah. obviously injury prone, getting kind of older. Um, but look, he's, he's sort of in the They just lost Buster Posey. They got plenty of money in San Francisco. They like that core, obviously. They want to keep the band together. So in that sense, it doesn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. How does... Where, what are you both both as far as the uh, as the values and as your personal thoughts on uh, two names here that stand out to me other than Belt? Uh, the first one, Michael Conforto, because he just had a pretty lackluster season and he is so young as a free agent. What what is your thoughts there? What do you think his best course of action is? Should he take it or should he gamble? Let me pull up our numbers <laughs> because that's gonna that's gonna help a lot. Um, yeah. Yeah, actually, no. Um, I'm just going to check something else. Um, it's a tough call. I think he's a borderline case. Um, but, you know, we talked about the Mets earlier. Um, and, you know, the one thing they have is a very rich owner. And, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, he, he did have a challenging year. He put up 0.84 after a 2.1, well, two, you know, shortened season. So that was good. So 2020 was actually deceivingly good. So this was actually his weakest year ever. And I'm not quite sure if he was playing through an injury. I checked the news on that. Um, but he really did decline. His WRC Plus was only 106. It had previously been much higher than that. So if you base it on track record, 
And so a projection system like Steamer does, uh, projects them for two and a half war, you can kind of do the math and say, yeah, that's probably worth it. So I think the Mets made the right choice here. I think he's also a fan favorite in New York, and, and I think they want to keep those guys around. Uh, but it's certainly something you could, you know, question if you look into it a little bit deeper. Like, what caused this, this you know, kind of dud of a season, I think is the big question. Mm-hmm. That, that one's tricky to me. Um, because I have seen some, there, there is a decent argument to be made. You know, if you take this deal, the the qualifying offer here, if you do rebound in New York next off season, you hit the market still before your 30th birthday, and with a pretty comfortable platform year, and with no qualifying offer or draft pick tied to you this time. So I could I could see the argument either way for him for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other one that. I don't know if it should surprise me as much as it does, but Justin Verlander, obviously Hall of Fame pitcher, elite the last time he was healthy. Nothing I can say about him, about how talented of a pitcher he is, but he's going to be 39 this year, and he's he threw six innings in 2020 before he went under the knife and didn't throw any in 2021. And I just don't know. It seems like such a question mark of what you should expect for him. That That seems like one where the Astros are... Am I reading this wrong? Does it seem like the Astros are hoping he would accept? I, I don't know how to read his free agency at all. <laughs> it's because he hasn't pitched in two years for all yeah. of his purposes. But look, he was at 36 years old. He was worth 6.4 at 6.6 of the year before that. So, you know, you have to obviously just down for age and injury risk coming off Tommy John surgery at that age as well. Um, but I guess, you know, they're very model driven. And they, mm-hmm. you know, they crunched the numbers and figured the the risk was worth the reward. So, you know, um, we'll talk about um, Carlos Correa in a little bit, but um, they are number crunchers there, and their GM came from the Rays. Um, so, you know, he's, you know, I, I, I trust that he's he's making the calculated gamble that is worth it. Mm-hmm. I just don't know. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not jealous of. Well. All right. I am jealous of Justin Verlander's agent because he gets a cut of Justin Verlander's contracts, and that's a lot of money. <laughs> but I'm not jealous of the job that he has ahead of him this offseason. I mean, everybody in the planet knows that Justin Verlander was an elite pitcher, a Hall of Famer, and, and has that in the tank potentially. But who knows what to expect from him? At uh, This is probably one of the – this is a, a unique case, right? Have we ever had a pitcher this talented go under the knife this late in their career and try to come back? Like – no. I, I don't know if there's anything to really base this off of. He's going to be 39, and I get that he's not—he's more than just a, a flamethrower. He doesn't just rely on the velocity, but that's also kind of been his thing, that he can dial it up to 97, 98 in the seventh inning of his starts. That's what makes him so incredible. But it, 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 that's probably not coming back right away, if, if at all. He's, he's 39. How, many, how yeah. many years are you comfortable giving the guy, and at what rate? I— yeah, honestly, probably I, I don't know what to think. Does he just accept this deal? Is is there more out there for him? Is some team going to take that big gamble? I I don't know. I'm watch. I'm so fascinated at all four of the future Hall of Fame pitchers on the market. Him, Kershaw, Greinke, and Scherzer, but him especially, given yeah the circumstances. Yeah, I I do believe 
he's the kind of guy who takes care of his body and you oh, yeah. see you see that as a, that's by by the way that's kind of an underreported trend like these older guys that are really like into nutrition and really like lasting longer in the careers tom brady obviously in the nfl has been doing it into his 40s um you know very very focused on diet and proper mm-hmm. training and 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 it seems to have elongated their careers um and the giants guys seem to have found the fountain youth as well maybe they're <laughs> they're onto something over there too um so maybe verlander is one of those guys where you think okay well he takes care of his body well he's going to come back reasonably close to his former self enough to to risk out uh the reward always the risk mm-hmm. so you're saying he's going to the giants <laughs> i can or, see or that the patriots those are the two <laughs> <laughs> exactly all right uh let's as as we always do we've run a little over on time on what we expected to spend on time but now let's uh, wrap up this this episode with uh, your non-tender article and some of the fallout that we've already seen from it. Uh, so uh, in case you missed it, it'll be linked in the notes here. But John wrote a thorough article in which he listed the non-tender candidates for each team, as well as uh, the bubble cases, as well as the option decline candidates and little explanations on some of the more edge cases, as well as he's been updating it uh, with the real-time results of players who did have their options declined or were released or outrighted recently things along those lines so uh, very extensive very thorough i don't think anyone else has anything like this <laughs> out on the internet quite uh so i would highly recommend taking a look at it uh but john what has stood out from you in this first uh, week or so of the off season and, and all these transactions we've seen um there are no surprises i <laughs> every every everyone that's been cut loose has been on my list or most of them anyway maybe i missed one here and there i should double check um but you know wasn't surprised by wade miley we talked about that earlier uh wasn't surprised you know by a lot of these non-tenders um so hunter harvey is another one that might have raised some eyebrows on twitter because you know he was a top draft pick top prospect but he's constantly injured he's a reliever only at this point the orioles finally gave him up for nothing mm-hmm. the giants picked him up thinking eh, maybe we can make something of this um but he's on the list as a non-tender so um you know i i have to say um you know our model is doing really well here at the bottom of the market predicting these um so um you know we but we also still have a lot to come because it kind of lumped together the term non-tender with a lot of these sort of there's kind of two stages we're in the first stage where they're outriding a lot of they're clearing some some roster spots uh, right now as kind of a just you know gardening if you will you know mm-hmm. um you gotta activate the guys on the 60 yeah because they gotta exactly IL, but yeah so 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 this is the low-hanging fruit guys they're that they're mm-hmm. just putting on waivers and outriding and so these are the i don't want to say the easier decisions but they kind of are you know just mm-hmm. so they can make room for the il guys coming back on yeah. so the second thing is the tough part which that's where the non-tenders come in so i kind of lumped that all of that together it's basically all like these are guys at risk of being cut by their rosters whether they're whether they're DFAs, you know, waivers, or whether they're non-tenders. And so we're going to get into phase two, which are the non-tenders, which are the tougher decisions, and we'll see how it does there. And you've got some names on here that are like, huh, like the Brewers with Keston Hira. Um, I've got uh, Alex Reyes of the Cardinals. People go, hmm, <laughs> really? <laughs> um, you know, we've got a bubble case with Cody Bellinger. I think he did enough in the offseason to maybe get over that line. And it's the Dodgers because they can afford him, so they'll probably keep him. Uh-huh. But there's some more interesting cases, and that's my point, and, and things to watch now as we go forward. Yeah, and unfortunately, I'm pretty sure that non-tender deadline 
is on the other side of that mm. CBA, CBA expiration date, and uh, we we haven't heard much of anything optimistic about the CBA. Um, we've seen kind of some rumors from both sides and, and just kind of a general consensus of like nobody expects this thing to be <laughs> fully agreed upon by that date, so we're headed for, for a bit of a lockout, it seems like, and so who knows what that does to the rest of the off-season timeline, to the non-tender deadline, to, to just off-season activity in general. Who knows if teams just treat it like normal until it pauses or if teams play things a little more timid. Um, but So unfortunately, we might be waiting a while for some of the answers on these, but fingers crossed that we don't have to. Fingers crossed that they can sort all this nonsense out and we can just have a normal off season and get a full season of baseball in 2022 that that's that's what we need yeah and and to that point i'm not sure uh if we're going to see too much activity before that mm-hmm. um whether it be free agent signings or whether it be trades um we have seen so i just want to mention carlos correa was offered um mm-hmm. five years and 160 million from the astros and he declined that and Twitter kind of said, oh, and they kind of laughed at it and gave a, gave the Astros a lot of grief because it seems like such a low number. Um, so that probably won't be resolved. Point one, that probably won't be resolved to your point after whatever the CBA situation um, you know reveals itself to be. But point mm-hmm. number two is, I, look, I crunched the numbers. That was not a crazy offer, actually, because um, he's had some up and down, ups and downs in his career. He's had some performance issues. He's had some injury injuries, injury issues. He's had a bad back. Mm-hmm. You know, thirty-two million for a, for him AAV is, you know, that's 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 fairly risky. So yeah. I don't think they were that crazy. I think he's going to get more in terms of because he's still relatively young and he's still. You know, obviously coming off a great year, best year ever. Uh-huh. Um, but if you look at the track record and look at the risks, I don't think he's going to get as much people think he is. And so uh-huh. and that's going to be an interesting thing to watch. I think that was a reasonable contract offer in a vacuum, but it's also like the total like fantasy GM type of contract offer of like, mm. all right, I'll pay you fair value. And then once you're on the wrong side of 30, get out of here. You're on board with that, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like he was going to be set to be a free agent at like age 31 at that point. And yeah. that's, are, are you, do you really expect Correa to say, all right. And I, I mean, I'm not implying here that the Astros made that offer expecting him to accept it, but do you expect him to really say, all right, I'm fine with that. I'm going to bet on myself again as somebody who has a history of back issues when I'm on the wrong side of 30 and hope for another mega contract then. Now, this, it's it's one of those situations where, you know, he's coming off the best year of his career. He's going to go for his mega contract now. And it's not going to be, well, I don't, we don't expect it to be some 12, 13, 14-year mega deal like we saw with Harper Machado. But it's going to be a big one, and it's going to be a long one, and it's going to be his his main contract. He might have another two or three one two or three year deal waiting for him on the other side of it if he remains productive and healthy. But this is the guaranteed one, and so he's going to be shooting for a lot more years than that. He is. It's true, and I don't disagree with any of those points. But I also have a funny feeling we're not going to get crazy money here. <clears throat> you know, I think it's going to be rational however where he's going. So it'll be you know eight ish years in maybe not 30 million AAV, but something close to it, because teams are so wary of, you know, overpaying now, as you've seen so many people carrying bad contracts. So I don't think he's, I don't think anybody's going to go crazy for him, um, but Mm -hmm. I think he'll get it. It it is his big contract. So somewhere in there is reality. I think the huge wild card here, and and apologies if I'm sounding like a broken record, but it's the CBA. 
Mm-hmm. Um, if I, I believe if, if we're going to have any kind of resolution to this that doesn't impact the season, it's going to take some pretty, I don't want, I don't want to go too overboard, but it's going to take to some level, some drastic changes to the financial structure of the game. Cause that's one of the biggest issues on the player's side is there's been quabbling, quabbling. Is that a word? Yes. Squabbling. <laughs> now. <laughs> uh, um, squabbling. That's the word I'm looking for. I think I combined squabbling and quibbling. Anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's been quabbling about <laughs> the uh, uh, the age at which players reach free agency and the service time manipulation discussion and uh, some of the proposals from the player's side from the union have been, you know, increase the league minimum and adjust the arbitration process and let players become free agents sooner, even if they don't get their full six years or whatever, and that kind of thing. And so I think that could all drastically affect the way teams look at contracts, the way they want to distribute their finances. I mean, if if the, the new CBA says, all right, every player on the league minimum, new league minimum is a million dollars or something like that, well, every team's payroll just increased without adding any new players because they all need to have at least 26 guys on there that's 26 million dollars already and so that could lower the amount that they're willing to invest in a Correa or alternatively there can be an adjustment that somehow makes spending on free agents more either either some to some level required if they implement some sort of salary floor or just more beneficial more uh, efficient uh, to spend on the free agent market something like that so I think there's just so much that could happen here that our model works for right now and for the current environment. And we might have some real big question marks after the CBA thing is sorted out of how to how to adjust things going forward. You're scaring me, Josh. I am scared. <laughs> I'm scaring you because I'm scared. <laughs> Wait, we have to redo everything? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, just some slight tweaks. Yeah, right. You know, I know I'm, I'm I've been aware of that in the back of my mind. I'm trying to yep. not to think about it. So <laughs> knocking on wood. There, there's no reason to stress about it until we find out what's actually going to happen, and uh, hopefully, we'll have the support of our audience through this, and we'll be as transparent as we always are in saying, "Look, we're this is all going to be new stuff too. We're going to try and work our way through it." Yep. Uh, but yeah, it's hopefully hopefully nothing too drastic that would impact us. I hope there are some changes in the game that make it uh, more appealing for fans more pleasant for players all, all of that i hope those changes do come but i hope it doesn't impact what we do too much because we put a lot of hours into this and <laughs> it would take a whole lot of hours to overhaul it <laughs> yeah it would but i mean we're just being selfish here but uh, of course we yeah. will however it works out and I'm, i i certainly hope that uh, they too they do work it out i know the players you know have some issues and i i'm very sympathetic to that so um, hopefully mm-hmm. you know we can we can work with that mm-hmm. All right, on that incredibly pleasant note, do you have anything else for <laughs> for today, John? Well, just to, you know, um, the market's starting to, you know, I shouldn't say the market, but activity is happening. So there's a mm-hmm. lot probably going on, and we'll probably have a lot more to talk about in the next one because of that. Mm-hmm. I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. Yep. All right. So that'll do it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening, and especially for listening to a bit of a different episode. Uh, let us know what you thought of our format with the guest. Um, I know it was my first time having a guest on a podcast, so we all have things to learn from it. So let us know any 
critiques more than welcome. Um, if you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the offseason. Thanks, John. Thanks, Josh.